Welcome to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the Books Big Network, a program dedicated to independent and self-published authors. This show will examine new and unique works of literature, learn about their creators, and discuss the industry. And now your host, Tori Gates. Arkham Horror began its life in 1987 as a cooperative adventure board game. Based on Call of Cthulhu, this adventure has undergone three editions, the most recent released in 2018. Inspired by H.P. Lovecraft and other writers of horror and suspense, the game is set in Arkham, Massachusetts in 1926. The stories are of intrigue, theft, deception, secret societies, and power. The board game has seen several expansions, video versions, and has found its way into book form with numerous anthologies and collections. Today on the Brown Posey Press Show, I speak with three authors of the latest collection from Aconite Books, Secrets in Scarlet, edited by Charlotte Llewellyn Wells. My first guest is M.J. Newman, who brought us the tale Crossing Stars, one of the founders of the card game. She is a second-generation game designer, senior designer of Fantasy Flight Games, and author of Dark Drifters, The Key and the Crescent, released in 2019. Let's begin with your contribution to Secrets in Scarlet Crossing Stars, and there appear to be two tales being told, and you've kind of weaved them together. Tell us how this story came about and how it it fit into uh, the collection. Yeah, so uh, Amaranth is a character that appears in the Scarlet Keys expansion for Arkham Horror the Card Game, which Secrets in Scarlet is kind of like a companion uh, novel too. Um, so I really wanted to explore Amaranth and and uh, her backstory and like her background and where she comes from and why she's doing the things that she's doing in the Scarlet Keys because she's very much an antagonist, but you don't really get the full sense of, uh, of who she is and what she's doing in the game. Um, so Crossing Stars serves that purpose. It's very much trying to explain her motivations, what she's up to, why she's and what she's doing and uh and that kind of thing mm-hmm. um and as a result it became necessary to kind of split the to tell like a framed narrative um where uh you have the present day which is you know actually in the 1920s um where you have uh, amaranth talking with uh luciana and then you have this other story that is the story that amaranth is telling to luciana and that's like a completely different thing but it explains where she's coming from and why she's doing what she's doing and that begins with this uh, character, Haresh, on this quest in the Sahara. Was Haresh Amaranth's vehicle at the beginning, or was this a person who is on a specific quest of her own? It's, uh, it's Haresa. Um, Haresa, I'm sorry. No, no worries. Um, so, I, well, actually, it's kind of hard to explain fully without kind of spoiling, like, part of like the twist that happens. So I don't know, is this like spoiler free or can I kind of go into it fully? <laughs> I will leave that up to you. I mean, if you want to sure. like leave off something, it, it's, 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 it's the author's prerogative. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. So without going too much into spoiler territory, um, basically the story of Haressa back in like these ancient times and what she and her companions are attempting to do is tied very much intrinsically to Amaranth and her motivations and what she's trying to do. Um, those those companions back in ancient times and Hedessa's story is very much talking about like the foundation of this um, 
this uh, organization known as the Red Coterie, which are like the main antagonists in the Scarlet Keys campaign in in the card game. Um, so you kind of get to see a sense of like where where they come from and uh, and like what they were like in ancient times, um, and then like taking moving that story forward into present day. And it was very interesting because Harissa has this almost noble quest and the leader of the actual caravan is is i guess her lover or her partner in mm-hmm. this in this venture all of the characters fit really well into this it was this small little fellowship if i may use that term <laughs> going off on this yeah. quest and uh, i love how you put them together in such a good they they meshed so beautifully tell us about the partner yeah. tell us about this this man who just seems like like nothing can hurt him Yes, um, Razin is the he's one of the founders of the Red Coterie, um, which again is this uh, this kind of globe-spanning organization that are out to collect these relics and artifacts that kind of break the laws of of reality and physics and cause and effect. And as a result, they grow very, very powerful. And they're kind of like throughout history, they've been manipulating events behind the scenes. So Razin is a very powerful. Person. He's got a lot of socio-political power, but he's also like a sorcerer, so he he has magic of his own. And Harasa wants this power as well. She wants. She was kind of trained from an early age to view strength as like the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but she's she's also very much in love with Resin. But a lot of that comes from his the the power and confidence that he exudes. Um, and she wants this for herself. She wants the power of like immortality and life and death and basically wants to live forever with her lover and kind of rule the world, um, which to her is a very noble quest. But she's very um, unforgiving along uh, that quest and kind of willing to do whatever it takes to get what she wants. And that, um, yeah, and that seems to be now... Set in the 1920s, set where they are, did that have anything to do with her being a woman in that period of time? Because we've had a number of great characters in Arkham Horror that are female and are stepping out from stereotypes and that not just, mm-hmm. you know, being in the shadows or being at home or anything like that. They step forward. Did that, it, does it, does it have something, does Harissa take that as part of her, her push or is there something more deeper in her human makeup? I, I think that's definitely a big part of it. I think, especially in the times that she comes from, in these like ancient times, um, I, I think uh, I think her father probably instilled this sense in her that if she doesn't sort of uh, rise to take power for herself, she'll end up in this in this role that um, that he didn't want for her um, and that she doesn't want for herself. Um, and so, yeah, I I, I do think. We've been making a very, uh, very uh, pointed push to put women in these roles of power and and uh, kind of flip the script, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just Teresa and Amaranth, but also um, even Luciana. She's a professor at the University of Barcelona. She's very successful. Um, she's very intelligent. She's highly driven and motivated. Um, yeah. <laughs> and she sort of becomes the foil for Amaranth or the tool of wherever we go from here, I suppose, if, if it comes to that. Yeah, she does kind of end up being uh, like Amaranth is the one in control, the one in power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
And I have to now ask you about this. You are one of the lead designers for Arkham Horror, the card game. Uh, for those who have never played it, and I admit, I'm ashamed to admit, I'm one of them. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Give us a little insight into the game and its making and how its popularity has just spanned off. Because I see I see the games on, on bookshelves. I see mm-hmm. different materials in, in different stores that I go to and... I wouldn't doubt some of my gamer friends are probably fans of this. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about it. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So uh, Arkham Horror, the card game, began in 2016. It was me and Nate French, who's the executive game designer at Fantasy Flight Games. I myself am a senior game designer at Fantasy Flight Games. And uh, Arkham Horror originally began as a board game a long time ago. It's been one of our longest running board game series. Mm-hmm. And when it came time to make like a card game version, they tapped me because I had worked on Lord of the Rings, the card game in the past. And Nate was, of course, the creator of that game. So we both had a lot of experience with cooperative games. Um, and yeah, after it came out, it kind of blew up. Um, it uh, It was... Uh, it won a lot of Game of the Year awards the year it came out. It's consistently in the top uh, like 25 games in Board Game Geek. Um, I'm very floored by the uh, success of the game. Um, as a quick overview, basically, you take the role of an investigator in the 1920s, investigating supernatural and paranormal mysteries, uh, very much based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft mm-hmm. and the overarching Cthulhu mythos. Um so lots of extraterrestrial entities and spooky ghosts and uh, creepy things that hide uh, in the unknown corners of the world. And you kind of have to defend humanity from these creatures while also doing a lot of um, puzzle solving and investigative work. And the other cool thing about the game is you create your deck. So your deck represents all of your allies and equipment and talents that your investigator possesses. And you get to craft that deck yourself with each new release giving you new options um so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that happens even when you're not actually playing when you're just discussing with friends the deck that you've just built and it's a very community focused game um a lot of friendships yeah that's really cool that it's like it's not just what's on the card you are building your character you're building it's that individual's powers that's really that's really neat i just i'm fascinated by this Check it out. <laughs> Guess I'm going to have to. Um, I'll only say this very briefly. The Lord of the Rings card game is probably the one thing of the LOTR universe that my sister does not have. Ooh, she's checked out. She is a... <laughs> uh, my my sister Susan is one of the biggest fans of LOTR, and she and our brother David turned me on to The Hobbit when I was nine and LOTR when I was ten, so it was like... Mm. it. I think it's it set the pace for my own style of writing without having any idea that years later that's what I was gonna I was gonna <laughs> do something. That's really yeah. neat though. And here's another thing I need to ask: Your father was a designer of games too. Now that had to have been formative. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, yeah, he he was making board games for a long time, and we kind of had like this basement with this huge wall of uh, of bits and and baubles from different board games that he'd like sort of cannibalized so that he could use them to create his own games mm-hmm. um to create like prototypes for his own games and um and so yeah i was um i grew up playing a lot of tabletop games i played a lot of rpgs i i went to game nights with my father and his friends uh which was fun cuz i was like 11 and they were like 50 <laughs> um, but I had a lot of fun and yeah, so it's, it's kind of no surprise that 
I started making my own games very, very young. And, um, you know, usually just like on index cards or something, because I was very young. Mm -hmm. And uh, but then I, I kind of didn't go in that direction for a long time. I went to college. I went to grad school. Um, I passed the bar. And then the job opening at FFG opened up. And I thought, like, this is my dream job. Like, this is what I really want to do is I want to make games. Um, and what's funny is I don't want to make the games that my dad used to make. <laughs> like, I love my dad. But uh, I, I make very different kinds of games than the games that he liked. Um, so it wasn't it was formative for me, but it was formative in a in a kind of a different way. <laughs> well, it's kind of like he sort of maybe laid the groundwork in how you set one up. But then you just you put your own imagination and your own spin into how these how it would go and sort of maybe. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, I have to ask you what the potential is for Arkham Horror's growth. I mean, we've talked about the success over the last seven years or thereabouts. Where do you see it heading? Well, I can't say too much about like future projects or anything, but the game has only gotten bigger. Um, a couple years back, we released a revised core set. Um, which is the same content as the original core set, but it's expanded to include enough componentry for three to four players. Um, it's got some new some new card art, um, basically just updated to like you know modern day standards. And since then, we've seen an explosive growth in in, in players. Um, and I'm actually no longer one of the lead uh, developers on Arkham Horror the Card Game. I I, I moved away from that project just recently, like last year. Um, so we have two new designers, uh, Duke Harris and Nick Corey, both of whom are fantastic. I, I, I kind of, I didn't hand pick them so much as I, I begged senior management to pick them. <laughs> um, so I, I, I see nothing but bright future for the game uh, and future campaigns. Um, and the Scarlet Keys was definitely like my magnum opus. Mm -hmm. And I know you can't talk about future projects, but are you working on something new within the company, something <laughs> outside the outside the uh, I guess outside the canon or the pantheon or whatever it would be? I don't know what word I would use. I am still working at FFG and I am still designing, um, but I can't say what um, it will probably be some time before I can say what. Um, but it's, it's not Arkham, I can tell you that much. <laughs> right. Well, last question. I always ask people yeah. this. Um, when you are faced with someone who is asking advice either for writing, for gaming, designing, anything of that sort, and they're not really sure how to proceed or you can guess that maybe they're kind of hemming and hawing, what's the best piece of advice you give to someone? Oh, gosh. Um, I think the best piece of advice I can give is to write or design what you're passionate about. Um, and like, this is also a piece of advice I give to, uh, to management when they're deciding like who should work on what. And I think it, I think it could work in other um, for like private individuals as well. But basically if, if you're excited to work on something, if you wake up in the morning, like loving what you do, you're going to make better product. You're going to make better books. You're going to write better stories. You're going to make better games. Um, because that will shine through in the final product. Um, so when it comes to writing, if you have a good idea, that, that might not be enough. It, you have to write from the heart. Like You have to write what you're really passionate about. And for me, that's a lot of uh, horror stories. And I, uh, I have a personal um, uh, 
self-published novel, Dark Drifters, which uh, can be found on my website, um, which for me was like a passion project for me. Um, so yeah, I would say that that's kind of like number one. Uh, as a creative, you have to love what you're doing. Coming up next, Carrie Harris and her story, Honor Among Thieves, when we return after this. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of authors from many genres. If you are into horror, thrillers, or fantasy, check out our Hellbender Books imprint, Thomas Malafarina's Maliformed Reality series, The Thirteenth Child by Nick Korolev, The State Changer series by Chris Fenwick, or the psychological thrillers of Keith Rommel. Find these and other works at the Hellbender Books tab and all works of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. We're back. Honor Among Thieves is the story offered to Secrets in Scarlet by Carrie Harris. A self-described geek of all trades, Harris writes for all ages with an emphasis on monsters, mayhem, and horror. Her works include Witches Unleashed, Voices of Aruna, Illegal Alien, and the series Bad Taste in Boys, Bad Hair Day, and Bad Yeti. Let's begin with how you came to contribute this piece to Arkham Horror, Honor Among Thieves. Well, I'm um, I'm a longtime gamer. Actually, my first writing project was writing for a game. Um, the first time I ever got paid, way back in the '90s. Um, and so, I've done a bunch of novels since then. I've done a lot of tie-in fiction, so anything that ties into games, movies, comic books, anything like that. And um, had done some work with Aconite before. And when I saw that they were looking for people to write for Arkham Horror, I jumped on it because it's a game that I really enjoy. I'm a huge Lovecraft fan. Um, I like co-op games, and so it, it's right up my alley. Mm -hmm. um, so I was lucky enough to submit a pitch, and they said yes, and history was made. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, about, uh, say you're a fan of H.P. Lovecraft and so forth, and your gaming background obviously had a hand in it. These are clearly influences, uh, and your uh, story, which we will get into, has a yeah. lot of different uh, tie-ins and and clear influences. I see film noir and I see uh, adventure and different sorts of things. Tell us a little about your influences. What brought you into writing? Um, you've touched on uh, a few of them already. Um, I am a fan of genre fiction. Uh, anything in which there are monsters, aliens, creatures from the great beyond, things that blow up in slow motion, I am there. And so... Um, you know, I, I kind of hop around um, when it comes to story. I love noir. I love pulp fiction. That was a huge influence on this story in particular. Um, I, I like capable people doing awesome things. Um, and and so, you know, you kind of take all of those things and mash them together and see what you come up with. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where this story came from. And I have to ask about this. One of your careers must have had a hand in it. You worked as an autopsy coordinator. What yeah. exactly, what are the duties in that? Well, um, I actually worked for the National Research and Surveillance Center for Mad Cow Disease okay. in humans. Mm -hmm. And so um, we did mostly cranial autopsies and 
Uh, it's an infectious disease. Yes. And so there are a lot of protocols. There's a lot of education. Um, and only certain people will do autopsies. So you're on call 24 hours. And when somebody passes, you're the one who's calling the the mortician and the funeral home and making all of the arrangements, making sure the family knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um I did have the option to see some autopsies, and I am that kind of nerd. I leapt on it. Uh, there's way more duct tape involved than you would imagine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just for the safety gear, they duct tape it to themselves. Oh, okay. Yeah. And as we used to say in theater, duct tape is the answer. Duct tape is always the answer. (laughs) Well, let's get into this story. You take us to Buenos Aires, pre-war Argentina. Tell us about our capable lead, Rosa. Who is Rosa Varela and what is she up to? Uh, Rosa Varela, when you meet her, you're you're kind of not entirely sure who she is. She's Mm -hmm. lounging um, at a cafe. She's determined not to do anything until her twin sister shows up and you discover that um, they are not the vapid heiress. They're thieves. They steal things. And they have been approached with an offer that they literally cannot refuse, despite the fact that neither of them are particularly happy with it. Mm -hmm. Now, why South America? What about that got you? For a, for a locale? Well, you know, part of it was, was simply uh, the source material. That was, um, you know, it, you're looking at the original game, um, mm. and uh, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this without spoiling things. I took certain pieces from the game as inspiration. I didn't have to use Argentina, but given that I wanted this to be more of an origin story, it made sense to see her, um, to see her there. Mm-hmm. And Rosa just comes across as, yeah, as you say, she's not what she seems. She seems supremely confident and quite forward. But her sister Milagros seems much more of the promoter. And as she says, she talks about trying to make a name. Now, they're twins, but not identical. Does she serve as like an offset to Rosa and her way? Or how did they come about in, in your uh, creation? Uh, well, you know, I I actually love that you say that, um, that, that they're kind of foils for each other. Um, to put it simply, I have twins. And um, everyone used to get them confused. And to me, they're polar opposites and always have been. Right. Um, so I wanted, you know, you have that trope where you've got the good twin and the evil twin. Um, and I, I didn't want to show that I wanted to show two twins who were each unique and had their own strengths and weaknesses, but we're both, uh, badasses. <laughs> so that's, that's where, uh, Rosa and Mila came from. Well, they certainly do acquit themselves both as that. And yeah, that's, isn't that interesting? It's like when you, when you have kids and you have two, it's like you, you get to see them so intimately in terms of their reactions, how they, they play off of one another, that sort of thing. And that must really be something. 
I don't have kids myself, so I don't have that emotional connection. All I can do is sort of look at my nephews and nieces as they grew up and now grandnephews and nieces, and I see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, you know, I think anybody who's close to kids kind of, kind of gets that idea that to a certain extent, when you don't know them, they all kind of blend together, mm-hmm. you know? They're all, they're all super cute, and they're all missing teeth, and not the same people. Right. Now, here's an interesting thing. You brought you threw some really cool details into this, which shows the professionalism of these two. Like, Mila makes a point that there is a uniform of sorts for any job. Did this come from research or something you saw in the game? I mean, little details like this are always make a story better. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, part of it, I think, is is from being a fan of of caper flicks um, and and books. You know, where you half of the fun is seeing them prepare for the heist right. because you know something's going to go wrong. But as you're watching them do it, you're thinking it's impossible. They've prepared for everything. So, in a short story, we don't really have a chance to go through that much preparation. So I wanted to show that they have the, they have the knowledge and the ability to do that band in their usual process. Right. Um, you know, because that, that, that creates the opportunity for something to go wrong. And ultimately as in any story, the protagonist, there's a decision that has to be made. And sometimes that can be the hardest thing for a character to do. Well, and and in this case, um, it is a decision that they know is not wise, but I've taken away all the other options. Well, and then, and when you have that, you see what they really become or what they can really Mm -hmm. be like. And the other thing too is uh, because the real, the real story all throughout Arkham Horror doesn't really, there's a lot of allusions to it. and, And you and the other authors have all alluded to these these things that are being sought, that are being wanted, that are being stolen. And there are these wonderful, mysterious characters like the watcher and the red gloved man comes straight out of like, um, I think of secret agent and I think of noir and stuff like that. Uh, I guess that's a vehicle, isn't it? The, The mysterious character who's always kind of showing up, and sometimes being an antagonist and sometimes just kind of being there. Maybe you talk a little bit about that. It, it, it's, it's rather fun to create one of those, isn't it? It is. Um, and in this case, um, the, the challenge was that um, I knew the, the red gloved man already existed. I knew other people were probably going to touch him, uh, you know, in their stories, they were, he was going to be there. And so how can I add to it with uh, add, add to his character without potentially contradicting something that's in another story? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was an interesting puzzle, mm-hmm. um, you know, to approach as a writer. I really, really enjoyed it. That is a question I needed to ask was um, what kind of rules of the road were there for this collection? Did you have, any set parameters that you had to work about and was that difficult to, to write within that framework? Yes. Uh, well, uh, yes, I had parameters. Um, it was, 
it was a unique challenge. And I think that's part of the fun of being in this business is that every project isn't the same. Um, so yes, we had parameters. We had advanced access to um, the material that, that the stories were built on, um, including some background material that uh, the public doesn't get to see. And so there were very strict guidelines on, yes, you can reveal this. No, you cannot. Um, and it took a few back and forth drafts of the outline to make sure that I wasn't revealing more than, uh, you know, more than they wanted, mm -hmm. um, you know, to keep that mystery. And also so that regardless of whether you find the book first or the game first, each experience stands alone and gives you some pieces of the puzzle, but doesn't spoil the other. Right. And the cool thing about it too, is all of the stories just lock together really well. It's like Legos. They just snap them together really nicely. And you bring, you know, the, the authors bring us to all of these things. What do you think this um, collection, how does this stand against say the game against other folks who have written stories about it? Uh, do you think it's, do you think it'll stand up well? I think one of the things that this story did, uh, this collection did well, um, and that uh, Lottie, the editor, did a spectacular job of is showing all of the different things that you can uh, that you can get from the game, because depending on what um, what adventure you're playing, depending on who you have at the table. It can feel very, it can feel very dark. It can feel very adventury. It can feel very pulpy. And so it's, it's all of these different things all mashed together. And I think that this uh, collection does a really good job of capturing that. All right. Great. Well, um, one last thing before I let you go, uh, what are you working on yourself right now? What can we uh, expect from you in the future? I, um, I'm working on a couple of stories that I can't talk about yet, and I'm I'm super excited. They're for a new license for me. Uh, every once in a while, I get an idea that's just mine. So um, I had a little bit of time and and leapt in with both feet. So um, I I unfortunately can't give any details though. <laughs> that's so. fine. Uh, well, how about this? This is the thing I usually like to ask people as a final question. Let's say somebody's got an idea that is theirs and they just don't know how to go about it. And maybe they ask you, how do I get started with this? Or I've got an idea, but I'm not sure what to do. What do you tell them for advice? What's your like simple advice? Well, my first piece of advice is that in any creative endeavor, give yourself permission to suck. Um, nothing comes out perfect the first time. And so, um, you know, you can look at it as failure. I've written or created something that I don't like, or you can look at it as an opportunity to learn. So now that it's on the paper, now I can make it better. And so it's really, a, it's really a measure of not giving up and, um, you know, doing that next edit, doing that next project until you find the one that hits. And it certainly worked out for me. Coming up next, James Fadley and In Art, Truth, When We Return. 
Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors. If fiction, whether historical, murder mysteries, or spy thrillers take your fancy, check out Milford House Press. Releases of interest include The Physics of Things by Ginny Fight, Checkers on the Hill by Doris Wilbur, or Stephen Greer Williams' Thera. Also, the Alexa Williams series and her two-volume travel memoir, Beyond the Sunset. Explore by clicking on the Milford House tab at sunburypress.com. For our final segment of the Brown Posey Press Show, we welcome back James Fadley, who offers In Art, Truth to Secrets in Scarlet. A software engineer by day, author and gamer by night, Fadley is one of the founders of Thunderbird Studios, which brought us the San Chicaro series. His works include the Banner Saga novellas and Outliers, Volume 1. Well, the story begins with our heroine, Edje Sahin, finding sort of an eerie series of coincidences in a set of library books. Tell us about our protagonist, Edje. Who is she? So Edje is something of a scholarly character. Uh, she works as the art curator for uh, the Museum of Turkish, uh, the Islamic, ah, I apologize. It was the um, Turkish Museum of Islamic Arts. And she, of course, also has a second life, basically alongside the, the coterie, basically the gang of red-clad they are human, but you wouldn't think so based on what they can do and so on, and sometimes how they act. So she's sort of caught in the middle of trying to be a good character while also working along more questionably, morally questionable characters. And that was the thing of the Coterie. Are they like a secret society? They don't ever really seem to get defined. And uh, I was wondering what exactly they, they serve a very interesting purpose. So the Coteries, their interest is in finding these keys, these special objects that are imbued with power. I, if I recall the notes correctly, they don't normally come red, but rather there's something about the process of binding them to a person causes them to become red. In Eche's case, she has a, a hijab, the wrap that those of the Islamic faith uh, wear on their head, women, of course. Yes. Um, however, she herself is very reluctant to use it. She's very much interested in using power for the right reasons. And that actually puts her at odds with many of her cohorts. And that was the thing. She's an art historian, and she is at a time of really significant historical change in Turkey. You said it in 1924. The Ottoman Empire has collapsed, and a Western-style democracy is being established. Uh, was there something... Now, I know that Arkham Horror sets it in the 20s, and that seems to be a guideline. Was there something about the time that interested you in Turkey and maybe that point in the nation's history? Well, it's a rare case. It's extremely uncommon for new democracies to be founded and flourish, particularly on their own, but that's effectively what happened under the guiding principles of President Ataturk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the foundation of that was very interesting, and there's a lot of changes there. There was the, oh man, um, democratization, the changes to dress codes were huge factors about that, including the interesting hat law. There was the changes to the alphabet. Like in 1928, their language is going to change. They use a form of the Arabic alphabet, and they're going to change to use the Latin alphabet thereafter. And, of course, there's also the changing situation with how 
religious studies are carried out. Uh, basically, at this point going forward, all new imams will be trained by the state itself, which is vastly different from how uh, many other Middle Eastern countries do it. And this was indeed a time of such uh, a change. And change of any kind is inevitable, but when it's something that is so to the core of the people, you know, it, it just makes the tension so incredibly hot. And Ejay is certainly aware of it. And you can tell that she's sort of walking, she's walking a thin line through there because, yeah, she's an observant Muslim, but at the same time, it, there's that feeling of, I'm going to do what I must do, and, and she's very forward in that way. Very much a factor. And it's looking at President Atatürk's history, that tension was felt too. There was a very, very major plot against him that was stopped, but several other more minor assassination attempts. It was not easy times. And I have to ask also, now you, you were talking about how what an interesting time we're in. Um, does your background, your educational, or other, otherwise give you maybe an in? Because you set the scene. All of the authors in Arkham Horror have set their scenes incredibly well. It's that, that take me there. And you, got, you dropped us right into that. Did you have um, something to build on or draw upon? A lot of my experiences came from... Um, research locally there was looking at past pictures finding pictures of um you keep wanting to call it Constantinople, but at that point it was starting to be called um my head is nowhere um <laughs> are we talking istanbul? istanbul yes istanbul of course uh it was starting to change uh even the name right then and there but finding pictures of what it was like back then that proved to be quite difficult too a lot of my experiences like this comes just from interviews with friends I have who actually lived over there. Mm -hmm. I actually had a Russian uh, check on my friend, my friend about that earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria. Yes. Make sure she was doing okay. I, I was worried. Yeah, and another question I definitely have about, um, you know, Eche and you know Haluk, her um, her partner, and all of that. There's a lot of formation and. Uh, did you have a story like this already, like in your mind, or maybe you had something similar written? And and how are and, and it, how are you placed to just put this one right in? So this, <laughs> wow, that was a really good question. The answer is no. I never had something in place to do it. And at the time, I was trying to figure out. This was a change for me because I was coming off of working with Stoic Studio for a lot of their stories. Uh, Stoic was happy to publish the occasional pieces that came out. But there also, like, was not so much oversight as this one had. Mm -hmm. um, as such, like, I was trying to get used to being more formal about how I construct stories and so on. And so a lot of this went into a great deal of planning. And I sent them, like, this unusually large synopsis of everything that was going to occur. And, there, like, even with that, there was a great deal of um, foresight in terms of the research that I was going to need and so on. Little things like trying to understand the alphabet back then, how to describe, like even opening scenes where Etchier is doing some handwriting analysis to catch on and realize that three signatures were of this from the same person. Um, all that research was like I tried to do as much of it as I could ahead of time, so it was relatively fleshed out. But even then, like there was some feedback and so on. Uh, it was so it was actually pretty much conjured day of. 
the, the all the ideas for it came together the day of the um the pitch the the submission call was put out. I was wondering how difficult that was in terms of having a set, sort of like a set of rules or a set of, of guidelines to follow. And as you said that you gave them quite a pitch for this. Um, I'm, I mean, I've, I've worked under certain guidelines before, but sometimes that's a little daunting. How was it for you? That was actually the easiest part. And I actually liked the feedback they gave me where they were, they loved the whole, it was more to the lines of historical fiction than just fiction in and of itself with all the research that went into. And I felt that was important because I wanted to capitalize on every aspect that this was not America. This was not Europe. Um, for, for many people out there, not too many, of course, been to Istanbul before. And I really wanted to capture not just what the field was, but also the times. And that's, that's the other thing we can forget. The 1920s, and this has been in my mind a lot because we've been running Call of Cthulhu games. But the 1920s were such a different time. And trying to encapsulate what that means historically in some way, it's actually quite intriguing. That is something, yeah, not to interrupt, but that, that is something that I'm also working with a lot is when I'm doing some of my work that is set someplace else or I'm working, I am working on an historical piece. It's like I draw on my history background, but I also have to really read and I have to pick up books I normally wouldn't read and I pick up uh, stories that normally I would have ignored and it's like they help sort of take you back in time to a specific place and say, okay, this is how it was. And it's 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 kind of fun because it's like all of a sudden you're going back in time and you realize that you have to write within customs. You have to write within a way of speech. You have to write the way certain people do. Edge certainly is more of a an upwardly mobile woman uh, considering her position and that sort of thing. But she's under those same constraints. Uh as you said, you talked about some of the source material that you got, but it is exciting at times to kind of do that because it's suddenly it's like you're stretching. You're really getting stretched. It can be. It also, the beauty of it is that sometimes the setting gives you material to think about, like people who are asking questions about how things could change. You see that some of that with the political situation over there and like even here in the Americas, what the, like prohibition was going on, we had... Um, the people coming back from the Great War trying to find jobs. Everything was great in the roaring 20s up until the Great Crash of 29. And just like thinking about what that was like and all the constraints that even if you forget the technologies, that is a huge one. Yes. Figuring out the technologies available to people. And I must admit, I think I did have to stretch on one element when Eche has to make a call to a friend of hers uh, down in Africa. Yes. And I was just like, is this even possible then? Is it possible to make a long distance phone call? Mm-hmm. Phones were, were starting to come into the country at that point. And I think the answer, like, in terms of real world would have been no. That would not have been possible. But I felt in this case it was okay just this once to make an exception because at the end of the day, it's still fiction. And you sometimes you just have to run with that. Yeah, you have to have some creative license. No, uh, the way it read to me was fine. It was like, yeah, they had to patch it in, patch it in, patch it in, and take some time. And that was 
a prevalent issue for a number of years, probably decades after that, and especially certain parts of the world. But you needed that discussion and you couldn't do, I mean, you can't do that in a telegram. It doesn't work. It doesn't feel as yeah. good. Exactly. Yeah. And also, um, I think also that that was uh, the thing that's intriguing about Arkham Horror, because I'm not a gamer. I'm not somebody that knew too much about it, but looking into it, it's like, this is such an exciting thing because you have these these characters and they're going for these different objects and there is something that is happening and every chapter has almost like a build to something that is not addressed. And it's like, oh, are we going to have to wait for another volume? What are we going to do? Well, that was the throwback where all this was tie-ins to the Scarlet Keys expansion. And that was, see, the Arkham horror game, card game, is basically kind of an adventure game. It's just handled through cards. Challenges are put in front of people. They play as a character, and they collect items and so on to help them figure out the solution to the problems in front of them. Like, sometimes it does involve dealing with monsters or figuring out, like, why can't we advance? What do we need to do? Mm-hmm. Um, that was a game it builds across, uh, upon. And the beauty of that is it also gives people a great deal of, in this particular expansion, choice. There's a question of when players actually reach Istanbul to help out Ece, or like, does it happen early decision, or is it late game? And the effects of these decisions are felt and change the overall pace of things. All of this ties together like a good old-fashioned conspiracy. And an exciting one and a fun one. Uh, it was certainly a very interesting ride, and this is something I generally don't read myself, but I certainly enjoyed it. I think it's, it stands out really well as a collection. Uh, for you, James, what is next? What else is going to be happening? As of late, I've actually been pulled into a great deal of TTRPGs. I've been playing the Genesis Call of Cthulhu 7th Edition, a friend of mine was tapping him on the shoulder and like, let's play Delta Green. <laughs> um, involved in Curse of Strahd and, oh God, there was one more, uh, Cyberpunk Red. So we've been playing a great deal of this, and it's been fun because it forces me to really think about things and come up with plot structures and so on on the fly more. And I think that's been helping me, like improving me as a, as a writer. And that's, so that's been my focus as of late. Besides yeah. that, I've got like one more personal novel i'm working on um it's coming together i'm really looking forward to it. even my wife's excited about it and she's like when she hears the stuff i normally write she's like eh 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 but this one she wants to read it so i think i'm on the right track that's cool uh last question for anyone who's got an idea of a story they want to write or they've they're, they think they know what they want to do but they're not sure how to proceed what's the what's the quickest and best piece of advice you can give someone <laughs> step one do not use AI. <laughs> okay. There's, there's been a hilarious situation if you've been following publishers like Clark's World and so on. Yes. Where people have been harnessing chat GPT to make short stories and just submit it. And this is a disaster because as, as the law stands at the moment, you cannot uh, copyright those things. So you sent them something that they, well, you don't really, it's not really ethical in that sense. Uh, two, if you really want to go ahead and get involved in these things, a lot of it comes down to plotting out what you want to do and then researching against it to make sure you have an idea of the story you want to tell 
and the research in that regard comes from one re researching the market to researching the things you actually want to write about to make things interesting there is no finer and more detailed source to draw ideas from than history there really isn't not like even as fun as these ttrpg games are um if they're not like it, no no better source is available to you than history to get ideas from um, then just practice. It really comes down to working through writing these pieces, these components. You can start with something as simple as flash fiction. A thousand words. You could probably, if you're motivated, if you've got a great idea, you can finish that up in about 15 minutes. Keep in mind, good is something that's really not for you to decide on. You have to show people, see how they like it, scratch your name off, give it to friends, family, like, hey, how do you feel about this story? And like get feedback from them, and only afterwards real, haha! Now I do know I did great. Um, once you've got these basic things down, like you can actually start thinking about like if you want to do a full-fledged novel or a novella, just approach it in smaller pieces and build yourself up to something big. Because finishing off an entire novel is—it's not easy. It's—it's it's huge. Mm -hmm. It's gigantic. It's actually what people, from what I've seen, tend to prefer on the market. Um, and it will take a while to build up to that, to really get your mind frame going to produce stories long enough to run 300 or so pages. That's what I would suggest to anyone who wants to get into writing. My special thanks to all three of our guests for their time. Arkham Horror, Secrets in Scarlet is available through Aconite Books. Until next time, this is Tori Gates. Keep on reading. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Find his works, including Searching for Roy Buchanan, Call It Love, and Shake Hands with the Devil, along with more independent authors of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network.